Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan. I'm super excited today. I get to talk to Todd Douglas Miller, who recently directed Apollo 11. This is an extraordinary documentary. I can't even... It's hard to put in words to convey the size, the scope of the, the documentary. It really captures the engineering feat, the just this, the conquering of science and engineering, everything that it took to get us from Earth to the moon. Uh, Kennedy said in the early 60s that he wanted to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And unfortunately, he didn't last. He didn't make it to the end of the decade. Uh, he perished in 63. But by 69... We were on the moon. And Apollo 11 is that documentary. Um, just of them launching launching the rocket and getting to the moon. It, it's a phenomenal documentary. The size, the scope. It, it's deeply impressive. Looking back at it too, it's really weird because we have all this like technology with like cell phones and... Uh, cloud computing and all these kind of things and you look back at uh, Apollo 11 and you're like how did they pull this off (laughs) it's crazy Um, the other thing that's super weird about the documentary is uh, I don't know about you but I've been so conditioned uh, by CGI that when you see something real like a rocket taking off when you hear it when you see it the it's a different type of senses that get engaged and it, it, it almost doesn't, it looks surreal. It doesn't look right almost. You know what I mean? We've been conditioned by how perfect and nuanced CGI is and real life. Like even when the boosters were firing, there's all this kind of snow and ice kind of just kind of chipping away and just the way that it was falling, the different types of pieces. Yeah, it's crazy highly recommend this documentary i'm super excited to talk to todd douglas miller so here's my conversation with him this is my summer layer live from pacific junction hotel girth radio hello todd hi i'm here thank you for doing this thank you for taking some time yeah no problem it's an extraordinary documentary you did a great job you and the whole team i know it's a combined effort oh thanks so much that's very kind mm-hmm. uh are you ready to go yep ready when you are I'm going to ask you a difficult question uh, up front. Uh, there's many uh, astronauts associated with the Apollo program. Do you have a particular favorite astronaut, or is there a couple of astronauts that kind of stand out to you and that kind of captivate your attention? Yeah, you know, I've always been fascinated with uh, Michael Collins. I feel like he is the forgotten uh, astronaut on um, uh, certainly uh, within the Apollo program, but uh, on Apollo 11. But what's really great about Uh, Mike Collins is he wrote this amazing book in 1974 called Carrying the Fire. And it's arguably the best uh, book written by an astronaut. Um, It's a classic, but it's also one of my favorite books of all time. So uh, in reading that, even, um, you know, uh, in my younger years and then kind of rediscovering it in the making of this film, it just, uh, you know, it ages like a fine wine. (laughs) It's really, it's really amazing. And it, uh, it really depicts, you know, everything, you know, um, uh, about the space program of why so many people are attracted to it Um, and certainly his personal experiences on Apollo 11 
are reflected in the film uh, and, and uh, you know, that he wrote about in that book. So I would say Michael Collins is right up there, but it's obviously it's very hard to pick a favorite. Um, they're all just so extraordinary. The fact that, you know, uh, there was thousands of people that applied for this job and it was just this very select group uh, to be able to do it uh, you know, reinforces that idea. Yeah, uh, Collins actually, weirdly enough, this sounds weird out loud, but he kind of provided some of the humor in the movie as well. <laughs> Yeah, and it comes across. It comes across when you talk to him. You know, he's just—he's uh, a very witty guy, um, very grounded, and kind of um, is—you know—for me is the glue that binds. Uh, and that's certainly, you know, uh, evident in his book, uh, in his first book that he wrote. So there's a powerful word that you—that's used three or four times in the Apollo 11 documentary, and it's curiosity. Uh, NASA truly didn't know what was going to be out there when they went to the moon, uh, or what to fully expect. And that kind of mirrors your documentary filmmaking process. You didn't know what kind of film footage was out there or what to expect. Can you give us a snapshot of the three-year journey, uh, gathering all that footage? Yeah, um, you know, we, you know, we, I guess we were really uh, uh, rolling the dice, if you will. It, you know, it was a bit of a gamble in the beginning. But uh, one thing that we did know was that this was such a well-documented uh, event. So. Uh, in looking through all the materials uh, that we had access to, um, we knew fairly early on, even before the discovery of the large format or any of the uh, tens of, uh, uh, you know, 10,000 hours, of 11,000 hours of audio from Mission Control um, and some of the other audio that came our way, we knew we had something special just in the simple fact that we we wanted to make a film as filmmakers that had not really been depicted before. So I think, you know, one could argue you could certainly, even without uh, the exquisite material that ended up in the film, all the large format stuff visually, it's still compelling. It's still, you know, it's still one of the most amazing things that humans, if not arguably the most amazing things, uh, thing that humans have done. Mm -hmm. So that by its very nature, uh, if you just step out of the way of it all, from a filmmaking standpoint, and you let all of that material speak for itself, we knew that we could make something special out of it. Uh, but then, of course, with the discovery of the large format, it just reinforces that idea. And then with the audio, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was at times very challenging, uh, to say the least. Um, but it was um, uh, something that was very rewarding to work on as well uh, throughout the years. I want to pick up on a couple of the threads you said, which is things that um, the general public hasn't seen and also the audio, because there's a great moment where the lunar module is about to land on the moon. And in the lower left side of the screen, there's an alarm code that's like in red. I think it was 1202 was the code. Um, so what was the mo what was yep. the, what was the process to kind of obviously get that information from uh, mission control, but also kind of how to decide how to visually like display it and so people can see it, hear it, just as the astronauts and mission control are dealing with this alarm code just as they're about to land on the moon. So it's got a really like powerful uh, bit of suspense. Yeah, well, there's two things um, that are in there in the film that uh, really haven't been heard before people know of it but it hadn't been depicted before so the alarms you're referring to are the 1202 and the 1201 alarms the 1202 comes on twice uh and the 1201 uh came on uh uh, uh later and during the landing sequence um they were they were both alarms program alarms for the exact same thing basically the computer was getting uh, uh was getting overridden uh or it was there was too many tasks for it to complete 
Um, and it was uh, giving the astronauts uh, an alarm uh, and mission control to say, um, I've got to do too much right now. Um, so, uh, but what was, uh, what we, what I had always wanted to know was, uh, was there an audible tone? Because uh, I, I, we, you know, I talked to some of the astronauts and, and they had said that, the, you know, there was audible program alarms going off on some of the uh, onboard audio with some of the various Apollo missions, you could hear it. But I didn't know if it was, you know, uh, in the lunar module, whether that was on their headsets, whether it was, you know, in the cabin itself. So we challenged uh, NASA's, uh, you know, his, the chief historian uh, in his department, and they actually did some research and found the documents uh, uh, that had the actual kilohertz tone of what that was. And it was indeed um, uh, it, it was an on-off tone that went through the headset. So, uh, you know, we got to play that, uh, give it to our sound design uh, team. Uh, they, they designed the scene with that uh, audible tone in there. We got to play it for Buzz Aldrin. Is this exactly what it sounded like? Um, you know, how many tones was it? And kind of work with him to, to get it uh, to, uh, you know, as accurate as we possibly could. And then there was also on the mission control side, there was a 24-year-old flight controller named Jack Garman who was sitting in the back room. Uh, he was working under a flight controller named Steve Bales in the front room. Uh, and it was just uh, when the alarm started first going off, no one in Mission Control knew what it was, <laughs> except for uh, this 24-year-old flight controller in the back room, Jack Garman, uh, who had trained on it just, you know, completely uh, coincidentally out of the blue a few days before. Uh, so he referenced the checklist and knew that it wasn't, you know, something that was going to put the astronauts or the spacecraft in imminent danger um, and was able to relay that information to Steve Bales. Uh, Bales uh, immediately said it to Charlie Duke um, and the flight director, Gene Krantz, and they could communicate that to the, uh, to the capsule. So you hear that in the film, uh, which is uh, very significant. Yeah, you're mentioning the the mission control and the astronauts and stuff, but on your team as well, you had uh, you have a Toronto connection. There's a gentleman, Ben Feist, who's on your team. Can you kind of uh, share what his contributions were to the documentary? Oh, yeah, Ben's great. Um, and also our IMAX um, mixer, uh, Brian Eimer, uh, is up in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, Ben was um, – uh, I met Ben. We had done a short film on Apollo 17, uh, and – I was editing that film and then halfway through it, and it was, it was a short film. uh, I had discovered Ben had a website uh, called Apollo17.org and uh, I went on it and uh, somebody had alerted me, one of the archive producers to it. uh, And I looked and I go, ah, this is exactly what I needed. Like, six months ago when I first started (laughs) editing, you know, the short film. So I connected with him. And uh, at the time he was working uh, for an ad agency in in Toronto, uh, but he was the head of their technology department. And in his spare time, he was, he was a space nut like all of us. So uh, me, between myself and Ben and uh, Steven Slater uh, in the UK, our archive producer, uh, and also in conjunction with Robert Perlman, uh, who was our his, uh, private historian and tech consultant uh, down in Houston, uh, the four of us just kind of developed this, uh, you know, need to just be as accurate as humanly possible when it came to Apollo 17. So when this project rolled around, we already had our team, kind of the core team, uh, in place from uh, a tech standpoint. Uh, but when Ben, uh, where Ben's real expertise lie, wasn't just in evaluating, you know, scenes and, and uh, giving his opinion on accuracy. Uh, we had come across 18,000 hours or been given access to 18,000 hours of Apollo era audio. 
that was part of a speech recognition project that the University of Texas uh, Austin had been working with NASA on. So they digitized all this audio, and 11,000 hours of it was uh, uh, strictly for Apollo 11. And then uh, we didn't know what to do with it. It was very poor quality. It wasn't synced up in any way. It was basically a series of files that were sitting on drives. So uh, Ben, being Ben Feist, if you know him, he's, a, he's very analytical, um, and had, instead of uh, us giving it to our audio team uh, to tr- just try to clean up, Ben approached this as a, 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 a tech problem. Uh, and had worked with, he put together a small team of, uh, and working with NASA too, uh, down at JSC on a way to not only uh, clean up all the audio, uh, but also write some code, software, and algorithms that attack this large data set and to sync it all up. So uh, all of us uh, on the editorial side, we could actually go through it in a very uh, concise way. The audio made sense. It was cleaned up. It was uh, de-interleaved. And we could literally put all of the tracks uh, up on all the mission controllers, uh, anyone who had a headset on, and just on and off it at any given moment in time. And it was just a phenomenal piece of work um, that they did and a phenomenal tool that we had at our disposal in the edit suite. Um, and Ben, uh, through his work while we were working on Apollo 11, was actually hired by uh, Johnson Space Center down in Houston. Um, so he currently works for NASA. Nice. So... I bring that up because there's clearly like um, a deep reverence and you mentioned being space nuts. Was it just kind of you wanted to make sure that people truly understood how important the moon landing was? Is that what was the driving force in terms of because there's no fingerprints on this. The The documentary doesn't feel like a, uh, a to- Todd Douglas Miller documentary, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we definitely wanted it to feel like it came from all of us. So and by all of us, I mean, even the audience. You know, this, these, all of this imagery and all of these sounds, everything that went into it is a reflection of who we are as people um, and how, who we are as a society, that um, all of us did this one thing, or at least, you know, the generation before us or a couple generations for some before us did something like this. Uh, so I think by just, you know, stepping back and letting the imagery speak for itself, it certainly has, uh, you know, um, it resonates with me. I watch it, you know, the film. Usually we make films, we don't watch them, but I try to go to every single screening. I sit through them. I'm sure a lot of the projectionists are just annoyed with me because <laughs> I go to, I, I like to sit right next to the projector if I can. But it just speaks to uh, the, you know, the wonderful team that worked on this. I mean, we, we did feel an immense responsibility, uh, particularly when, uh, we had so much footage that hadn't been seen by the public before. We just felt just such a need to uh, archive it properly, to curate it, um, and to preserve it for you know uh, future generations. Yeah, there's a moment kind of echoing what you're saying early on in the documentary where the astronauts, uh, Buzz and the team, are getting all suited up. And I think it's Walt, uh, Walter Cronkite kind of doing a, uh, talking, and he says he mentions that the burden of the astronauts and um, that was something I had never really considered before. Just the the huge, like, I understood the immenseness of what they were doing, but as a burden, uh, that's an unusual choice of words. Yeah, the astronauts' core was very close. You know, it was almost, a lot of these guys came from the military. A lot of them, had, you know, most, but not all of them had college degrees. And they were, you know, they were uh, kind of the, the evolution of what the the, uh, the perfect astronaut uh, was, was going to be, which was, you know, this... Um, uh, this mix of steel nerves uh, and intelligence. And 
I think when you look at uh, the Apollo 11 group, uh, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin, when they're getting suited up, you just see it, you know, just just on their shoulders, just the weight of this thing. Um, and you see it written on their faces. Uh, and certainly um, as they're going out um, to go do this thing, uh, they represent all of us. Uh, and it certainly wasn't lost on, uh, you know, on, on any of us that were working with the material. Uh, and it's just a real testament to not only them, but you see it, you know, in the, in the mission controllers that uh, were up for all hours of the days and nights uh, making sure that this thing was successful. Is that a different type of masculinity as well? Because even not just the astronauts, but mission control too, just the, you see a lot of the dudes that are working there and it's a type of masculinity. Um, there's a stoicism you, you kind of mentioned, like there's something we just don't kind of see anymore of just like they knew what they were doing was historical, but they also knew they had a job to do and they just kind of went ahead and did it. They kind of executed yeah, if you look at if you you know just take um, Buzz Aldrin's uh, you know uh, past. I mean, these guys fought in the Korean War. Uh, him and Neil both. Uh, Buzz, you know, they were fighter pilots. Um, they lost a lot of their friends, um, and they you know they they did things that happened in war. Um, they shot down you know planes, uh, and um, uh, they were also you know these amazing test pilots too. Uh, Neil himself, you know, was, uh, uh, you know, had gotten his astronaut wings uh, long before he ever, you know, stepped into a Gemini capsule um, during the X-15 project. So I think it just speaks to the level of, um, uh, you know, their their um, dedication, their concentration, and, um, you know, certainly, certainly their, their love of, of their jobs, too. Uh, and, I, you know, I think the film, unlike anything, I'm not saying it's because we made it, but uh, I think you really get that sense of that uh, when it's reflected. I did want to just go back real quick. You had mentioned uh, the burdens with uh, Walter Cronkite. Yeah. And Cronkite, you know, we we use him twice, uh, and he actually the quote is uh, the burdens and the hopes. And I, I the minute we heard that, or I heard that, um, I just thought it was just perfect, a uh, perfect reflection on what was. Uh, I don't want to psychoanalyze what the astronauts were going through, but certainly. What I felt like when I was uh, watching them in the suiting up shots, that's what I felt. And, it, it, and Walter Cronkite, I mean, he, he did that entire speech the day of the mission, and it was off the cuff. He wasn't reading from a card. So it just, it just goes to show you how, and then he was enormously invested in the space program from a journalist, uh, journalistic standpoint. Uh, but also he represented... Uh, you know, just a, a, a vast, uh, you know, the, the thoughts that were going through uh, not only the American minds, but uh, people worldwide. And I just thought it was such a poetic statement about what was going through their heads. So that was the reason why we used that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it stood out. Like, as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, man, like... Because, again, like, we've been kind of, um, I guess, inoculated. Like, we have iPhones and self-driving cars and things like that. So it feels like we have a lot of technology and a lot of progress. But when you look back at the enormous task of what they were trying to do, and it's not even just like the technology of just trying to get to the moon or to launch a rocket. They also had to broadcast it on television, like you mentioned, Walter Cronkite. So is the, the process that you and Ben and the other rest of your team in terms of uh, digitizing and scanning footage and film, uh, cleaning up audio, is that still is that done now that the film is done or is that still an ongoing process? It's an ongoing process. You know, the film was one facet of what we're doing. You know, we survived a couple of government shutdowns last year. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah. 
the most uh, recent one um, certainly didn't do us any favors. You know, you, you know, unfortunately, the first thing to go, uh, even if it's a partial shutdown, are science centers, museums, mm -hmm. uh, NASA, National Archives. Um, you know, astronauts are, up, you know, uh, up on the space station. Good luck. You know, there'll be a few people that'll be monitoring you. So I think uh, and that that certainly all of uh, all of that really hit home for us. You know, we had some materials that were kind of in flux. Um, at no time was there any, you know, we had backup plans in case, um, you know, something uh, had happened. Uh, so at no time was, you know, the actual um, negative from any of uh, the materials we were working with in, in Jeopardy. But certainly, you know, it, it hit home that, you know, private entities, uh, commercial operations are vital to the lifeblood of uh, the government, you know, they need all of us. Uh, the, if you go on NASA.gov and you look at all the wonderful transcripts from the Apollo missions, those are the work of volunteers. NASA didn't do that. So uh, they manage it. They make sure that, you know, things are um, in check and there's wonderful people that work over there. But the vast majority of all the legwork of all that stuff are just people like us that, you know, have a vested interest in it, want to see it, um, you know, uh, uh, protected, want to make sure that the historical record is correct. So the second part of our uh, project uh, working with the National Archives is to do just that, is to digitize all the other ancillary material that's not specific to Apollo 11, preserve it, to curate it properly, and ultimately to archive it and work with them uh, to make it available to everyone. What you just said is interesting how nowadays in 2019 when we have a government shutdown, one of the thing, first things to go is basically science, is what you're saying, all the science centers and some of the NASA programs and things like that. But when you look back at the footage in your film, you see uh, just a, literally a sea of people, just uh, civilians, just fascinated by this science and by this rocket and where this is going. And it's such a contrast of where we've come to where we are. Yeah, I, I think, you know, events like this, um, if we're lucky in our lifetime, uh, we'll get to see the first, you know, footprints on the moon. Events like this are uh, are vital to who we are. You know, it's in our DNA to be explorers. Um, and certainly from a practical standpoint, um, you know, the Earth is not going to be around forever. It might not happen, you know, for another million years, but we're going to have to get off of this, you know, this rock to survive as a, as a species. So I think by uh, showcasing, um, uh, you know, uh, high-quality imagery from back then of our of our, you know, this first event when we spread our wings and got out there and, uh, you know, set foot on another world, it really had the effect just like it did back then. Uh, we hope today it, 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 you know, brings people together. Um, and it certainly did for us as we were working on it. And, uh, you know, we're just so happy to finally present it to uh, audiences. I'll get you out on this. This last question. The uh, Apollo 11 was obviously the culmination of the space race between America and Russia. Uh, JFK had, in the early 60s, had said, we're going to do this. Right now, we're currently living through a billionaire space race, Bezos and Elon Musk and others. If money was no object, and it seems like it, this would be a yes for you, but if money was no object, would you go to the moon with one of the companies we have today and like become a space tourist? Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd be first in line. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, these private companies are always, you know, there's the, you know, that's always been um, a part of NASA. You know, NASA obviously was a lot more involved with the building of these, you know, vehicles back during the Apollo era and before. 
but uh, now, um, you know, they are uh, customers. Um, and it, you know, I, I, my hope is that there's tons of customers for all of these private companies um, and that, uh, you know, it'll just only increase uh, not only tourism, but scientific, you know, endeavors uh, throughout, um, you know, the moon, Mars and beyond. Yeah, your doc is definitely inspiring. Like, again, just seeing it again and just like, because I think we get a little sanitized, like, oh, yeah, we went to the moon in 69. And then that's kind of all everybody says. But when you actually see it and see what it actually took, it's like, wow, <laughs> that was a lot of effort. That was crazy. Yeah, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and it was always our hope that, you know, hopefully, I mean, we built this thing the last uh, film. Uh, you know, we're shocked by the reaction right now. Um, we kind of thought, you know, well, 20 years from now, you know, that's when we'll have our moment, um, you know, mm -hmm. if the people look back. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, we put enough Easter eggs in there uh, that you, it deserves repeat viewing, kind of demands it, which is why I go and watch it all the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, but certainly we also wanted it to be used as a primer for, you know, hopefully engineers and people that, you know, are, are uh, less represented they could, uh, you know, get excited about this, and particularly the younger generation, too. They could see something that, you know, uh, you know, their maybe their grandfathers or great grandfathers did um, and uh, it'll inspire them. All right. We got to end it there. Thank you, Todd, uh, for taking some time. Thank you for the documentary. And uh, I guess I should give a shout out to science and all the engineers at NASA and all the astronauts and everybody who made this uh, majestic space miracle happen. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So that was my interview with Todd Douglas Miller, director and editor of Apollo 11, an extraordinary documentary. If you have a chance, go see it. It is definitely worth it in IMAX, and it is definitely worth pants. To follow me, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MyPalSammy. MyPalSammy for all three. Thanks for listening. Space, yo.